Hello everyone and welcome back to Mental Health Much. It's the fourth episode of this series on Crystal Met, PNP, and Gebein Kurman, and I am again with Jordan, who prepared another episode, this time only a one-part episode uh, for today. How are you, Jordan? I'm doing well. I'm back for a fourth episode. I've survived eliminations four episodes in a row. I'm going to have to start paying you soon. <laughs> mm, I'm not going to say no to that. <laughs> I made a grand total of zero dollar with my podcast, and I actually do not want to monetize it because I think it's important to talk about mental health and queerness for free. But if I find money on my walk tonight after this, I'm going to give it to you. Oh, I appreciate that. And I'm happy to monetize it for you if you don't want to do it. Um, <laughs> sponsorships, anyone? <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, it's not a two-part episode tonight, thank goodness. I kept it cute. I kept it in a little one-episode format. You say that, and you've sent me four pages of notes. Yes, I think Vincent's learning a lot about how my mind works. And it's a very messy, long-winded place. But um Four pages of notes, but none of them you have to read at all, um, I promise. So tonight's topic, we're going to talk about a feud. We're going to talk about a conflict. Ooh. Ooh, I know. It's exciting. We love conflict, don't we? <laughs> I think in the first episode, we alluded to the idea that, you know, you've been coming from this sort of angle of abstinence-based and recovery and people trying to stop using, and I come from the place of harm reduction and how that sometimes is like we're seen as at loggerheads with each other. Mm-hmm. But we're going to talk about that feud between harm reduction and abstinence. And is there actually a feud? What do you think, Vincent? Is there a feud between harm reduction and abstinence? Just starting with the hardest questions. Oh, yeah. Hard-hitting questions. So I think there is only a feud mm-hmm. for those people whose used is quote-unquote problematic slash very problematic. So it's like most people can do harm reduction. That's beautiful. And we talk about it and we love it. Mm-hmm. And then there's a handful of people who rely on drug more heavily, who have mm-hmm. less control maybe over their use. And then suddenly the conversation on harm reduction sort of like gets off the door and then it's abstinence only. And I've known people who were refused mental health services because they were told you have to control your use mm-hmm. before. And then they were like, yeah, but I use because of my mental health problems. Yeah. <laughs> So it was this weird place where at the place where to stop their use or to help with their use, and they were not equipped with mental health. And they were Mm -hmm. like, well, you need support for your mental health. But they were like, well, I cannot get support for my mental health because of my use. And I can get not get support for my use because of my mental health. I think I'm not answering your question. No, you are actually. You're coming at it from a very different angle than I expected, but I love it. Um, You're also talking about the wonderful catch-22 that exists in our mental health sector, which is like, you need to get sober to get mental health help. But then when to do that, you need to be not demonstrating any ill effects of your mental health and under under control. It's like the only thing where we want the people to be better before we treat the illness. Mm -hmm. So I was coming at it from this sort of broader like approach, but you've You've touched on some stuff we'll touch on in the episode tonight for sure. And I was thinking about a fight that happened, a fight, quote unquote, that happened in the media a couple years ago in the pages of Toronto's biggest gay paper, Extra, between two groups of friends of mine, actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So noted activist Tim McCaskill came out in the gay media uh, sort of saying there was a problem with crystal meth that he's seen in our bathhouses. And why wasn't anybody doing anything to stop it? 
we needed to prevent people from using crystal meth and the harms associated with it. I think Tim was coming from a very uh, a place where he's very concerned about friends of his who he'd seen really like laid low by crystal meth, who had lost a lot of stuff. You know, he'd seen a lot of damage that had come from problematic crystal meth use in his life. And so he was coming from that concerned place. But the message was one of prohibition and prevention. And some of the letters that he wrote talked a lot about not having concern for people using so much as we needed to prevent people who didn't use from using. Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter if we harmed people who used drugs in the interim, as long as we accomplished the bigger goal. I also know some folks that are friends with Tim that work in harm reduction. This group of folks wrote a letter in response, and that letter was very much from the harm reduction aspect of things, that we needed to support people. We couldn't you know, have preventative messages that was very sort of almost in retaliation against what Tim had said. And at the time, I'd taken the side of my friends on the harm reduction sort of side of things. But that was a very important fight to witness because I think now looking back at it, I can see that neither side was right, neither side was wrong. Mm -hmm. And it taught me some things about understanding where the common ground exists between what seemed to be two opposite philosophies, harm reduction and abstinence. So we're going to explore a little bit about that, where it comes from historically, what they believe. Are they really all that different? Are they really similar? And then we're going to talk a little bit about if the enemy isn't the other camp, harm reduction or abstinence, who should we be focusing our attention on? Like, where should we be paying attention to? Mm-hmm. So um, I did a little bit of research for our episode, Vincent. You'll be proud. I read some things on the internet. <laughs> I did nothing. <laughs> but you did for a lot for the last episode. Um, I'm going to start with a quote, and it says that drugs are not entities with fixed meaning. Our ideas about them are framed by the era we live in. I think that's a nice way to kind of kick off some talk about the history of harm reduction and where it comes from and what it believes. So, um, Vincent, what do you know about the history of harm reduction? Where would you say it began? (laughs) (laughs) Tell us the entire story. I have never asked myself that question before. (laughs) Harm reduction is... Okay, no, that's not true. So I think right now the word is used... Like a lot, harm reduction happened in many ways and for many things. I'm thinking about, you know, uh, queer men using condoms for HIV as like harm reduction. But I think that the harm reduction at its core comes from the opioid sector to prevent overdose and sharing of injection and snorting and smoking material. And I think at its core, it really comes from the drug world. So I'm going to say that it's probably from somewhere in the 80s. And the answer is, you're absolutely correct. It comes from the 80s. And you're right that it comes from the drug using community. Look at me. I'm like winning at this. <laughs> you don't get any money at the end of this for that. Either, just, you know, there's no there's no grand prize. This isn't Jeopardy. You're doing great. I do it for the validation. <laughs> So you're absolutely right. Harm reduction is a relatively new philosophy. I use air quotes because harm reduction actually means a couple of different things. It's a set of practices and policies that you know are in place to help people protect people who use drugs from harm. But it's also a philosophy and way of looking at any other harmful behavior that human beings do that can have harm associated with it. It's a philosophy about reducing the risk, and it's very much about empowering the person who's engaging in that behavior to make choices about how to reduce the harms that are meaningful for them. 
Mm-hmm. It also has a link to social justice movements and things like anti-poverty and anti-racism and anti-capitalism. This is why I guessed it was coming from the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds very 80s, even the name. Somehow. Harm reduction. Yeah. <laughs> it's like not joy enhancement, it's harm reduction. You know, we're not making it more fun, we're just taking away the bad shit. So I was going to ask you another trivia question, but this one, this one I'm going to ask you all the same. Have you ever heard of the 4-H club in terms of HIV and the early AIDS crisis? Yes, absolutely. I feel bad repeating them out loud because they were not great. They were not great. So we can just, <laughs> do you want me to repeat them for you? <laughs> um, they were homosexual people from Heidi. Hmm? I learned those in French, so sorry for my translation, but they were like intravenous drug use, which does not start with an H. Heroin. Heroin. Oh, okay. And then the last one was for sex workers, which also does not start with an H. No, it was for hemophiliacs. I was going through this when I was preparing for this, too. I thought, what does the H stand for? It can't be the H. Well, that doesn't start with an H for sex workers. And then I realized it was hemophiliacs. So sex workers were not, like, were they just not affected? Or were they just completely off the radar? I think they were (laughs) off the radar. Whoever was thinking this was a really clever thing to come up with, like, just it didn't fit in with the H's. But back in the day... So bad. So bad. I'm making you repeat all these terrible historical things. I know. I'm sorry. It's not my, these are not my words. (laughs) It's the second episode I've taken us back to the 80s. I'm a little bit obsessed. (laughs) The reason I bring that up is that back in the early days of the HIV AIDS epidemic, heroin users and intravenous drug users were dying from HIV and AIDS uh, very, very rapidly. There were a huge population impacted by AIDS and nothing was really being done. So people in those communities came together to like, support each other and like get access to things like clean using supplies, which at one time it was not legal to give out syringes to people for free. Mm -hmm. There were a lot more restrictions on that. Um, So it was really a movement led by drug users to support other drug users from dying. And it's so funny how we're in 2021 and harm reduction is still a movement primarily led by drug users trying to prevent other drug users from dying. I just think it's a weird parallel how far we have not come. It's funny because in my, okay, Maybe I'm going to make some enemies saying that out loud, Mm -hmm. but in some of my fields and some of the people around me, often now harm reduction is the thing you're going to do when abstinence not working. Ooh, okay. Maybe this is just what I'm picking Mm -hmm. from, you know, maybe I'm, I'm projecting or something like that, but I feel like sometimes I hear it that way when it's coming from professional Mm -hmm. and when it's coming from, people who use drugs, then it has this different kind of vibe. But I think sometimes in my field, it has a little bit of that negative connotation. Sorry if I triggered anyone. You triggered me. Thank you. <laughs> I'm triggered now. No, I think that's actually really like, it's a brave yet controversial thing to say. I like it. I'm living for it because I think that's something we're going to touch on a little bit with abstinence. Is like, why do they feel that way? Why do they privilege abstinence and think of harm reduction as a step down or as like somehow a lesser outcome for someone? And we're going to talk a little bit about how abstinence got that hallowed place as the, the sort of solution du jour for everybody that we needed to aspire to. And harm reduction actually owes its life to abstinence-based recovery because you wouldn't have harm reduction if you know abstinence-based recovery or abstinence-based solutions weren't the only option on the platter for a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm going to jump ahead 
I'm going to pause on the harm reduction. I'm going to take us back to abstinence. I'm going to start with abstinence, the granddaddy of them all. Uh, long story short, abstinence has been around a lot longer as a promoted um, solution for people who use drugs. That's probably why even years, like 40 years after harm reduction was created, there's still this sense that abstinence comes first. And then when abstinence doesn't work, we go into harm reduction. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people that worked in our field or who at least were our teachers or professors or mentors, they were working in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And it's been a long history of like not only the government supporting abstinence based, but like active campaigning on the part of law enforcement and various other aspects of society like um, psychiatry, medicine, promoting abstinence as the only way to go and that you are supposed to say what to drugs. You're supposed to say no to drugs. No, just say no. You heard it here first, folks. Just say no to drugs. It's that easy. <laughs> Except the drugs that are socially acceptable. Oh, you don't have to say no to those. You can do as many of those as you'd like until it becomes a problem. And then we just kind of shame you for it. <laughs> yeah. It's like the playing the lottery. Yeah, very much so. So I don't want to belabor the point by doing the whole the historical look back. But I know that we talked in the first episode, I think, about the racist origins of a lot of drug policy and drug laws. Mm -hmm. In Canada, we are no different. Our laws start with a lot of anti-Asian sentiment in the West Coast of Canada back in the 1800s. So you can blame our current drug laws on the fact that a lot of Chinese immigrants came to Canada to build our railroads. Some white people got upset about immigrants taking their jobs, which seems to be a recurring theme throughout modern history. Yeah, it seems like I've heard that before. There was a riot. There was a protest. Some people who were very concerned about opium smoking, which they blamed on the Chinese, got the ear of the Minister of Finance and... And the Minister of Finance got the ear of our Prime Minister at the time. And the very first Canadian laws around drug prohibition started in 1908. I think we had the Opium Act in Canada. Opium became the first criminalized substance. And we have not looked back. We've just criminalized every other substance known to man. Like, Do you know that there were a number of like uh, psychoactive substances that you could use legally up until that point in Canada? I... Again, another thing that I never think in my head, drugs have always been illegal, mm -hmm. right? Like it's just a thing, but mm -hmm. no, I'm guessing, I'm guessing if you were white at the time, you could use any drugs that you wanted. There was a, a time during the 1800s when you could get cocaine in everything, cough drops, sodas, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola. You can't get it in Coca-Cola anymore. I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> it's a desperate night at a party for me, um, but uh, opium. Opium was commonly smoked. In fact, England went to war twice with China to get control of the opium trade. Meanwhile, in the colonies, we were busy banning it and blaming it on the Chinese. So it's a quite an interesting and convoluted history caught up in racism, capitalism, and then eventually law enforcement. Our three favorite things. Well, I'm all, yeah, we love capitalism and law enforcement. And racism. <laughs> we're not here to debate the merits of capitalism, but we will talk a little bit about law enforcement. Um, and this is why I think as well, people like you and I grew up thinking drugs were always bad and criminalized. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have a presentation in school, and I'm going off topic here, where the drug, the drug cop came in with all the drugs and showed you and like told you horror stories about drugs and what would happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely had that. Isn't it bananas that this is my job and their message worked so well that before tonight, I had never really stopped to think about where these messages come from and how they arrived. Mm -hmm. Like this is a huge blind spot that I've had mm -hmm. for years because I guess their messaging was just so well done that I just assume, of course, drugs are illegal. 
that makes sense. Yeah, it's really effective messaging. And I think that way too still. And yet I work actively against those messages every day in my life, but I still encounter them internally. We were just blasted with that subconsciously well through school, right? They had our open ears, our open minds, right? The teacher says drugs are bad. The drugs are bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mom and dad say drugs are bad. Drugs are bad. And nobody questioned that because the law, the law of the land was that drugs were illegal. Um, drugs were linked to not only race, but they were linked to criminality and pathology. So back in the 40s and 50s, this profile of the criminal addict came out. And I think this was fascinating learning for me that medicine, like psychiatry, like actively participated in saying that people who use drugs were somehow deficient, mentally dangerous, criminal. And this was something I wanted to ask you. If you think back to the 40s and 50s and what other group of people were criminalized as deficient and immoral and like degenerate around the same time? Oh, homosexuals. Yes, the homosexuals. You know, think about that impact that the historical legacies of criminalization of homosexuality and the way that we grow up feeling ashamed of ourselves. And then this other identity of like the criminal addict and how we both, we struggle with those things in our community. Some of us deal with both of those identities at once and all of that baggage that comes with that. Mm -hmm. Coming back to what you're saying, though, yes, it's very effective messaging. And no, not a lot of people give thought to where their beliefs about drugs come from. Hopefully we can trouble that through over the course of the episodes. Think about where it comes from and then ask yourself, is that my thought? Do I actually believe that? Do I know that to be true about drugs? Or is that just something that I believe because everybody else believes it? Yeah, I don't only believe in decriminalization. I actually want legalization of drugs. Mm -hmm. But I never came to stop to wonder when or at what time drugs have became illegal. It's it's interesting. And how is this caught up with abstinence? Because abstinence is both a philosophy about what you should do to deal with the problem of drugs, but it also has been brought into like government policy and it's become a legal sort of way of looking at drugs and a a norm for society, right? And so that's a tricky thing to unpack. And when I was trying to compare the two of them tonight, I was like, well, you can't really because one of them has been accepted by the government as like the law of the land for decades now. And the other one is this young upstart that's trying to get a foothold in the door. It's also interesting thinking about abstinence and harm reduction in a way. And obviously, this is all very like USA based, but how a story of abstinence sounds so much better. Uh, you know, like John stopped drugs and then found a new job and then found love and then had three kids. And then we're talking about him in a newspaper versus John continued to use drug, but did not go to jail and did not like uh, continue to use needles that were not clean. And now John is still alive and relatively healthy and good for him. Like that does not make a great headline. Good for you, John, for living your life and um, yeah. not causing harm to yourself and to others. Well, it's interesting you talk about that because I, I agree. Re recovery stories, like abstinence stories, are very redemptive stories. Like they're like storylines that we like to watch on TV. Like started from the bottom, now I'm here. To quote Drake, shout out to Drake. <laughs> I quoted his song. I might as well shout him out. Um, <laughs> But like redemptive stories, people love, love, love them. Mm -hmm. And like when I had a redemptive story of my own, trust me, I like to tell everybody that story. I used drugs and then I got clean and like my life is better and I've got going back to school and blah, blah, blah. And then came the moment when I stopped not using drugs. And then all of a sudden I didn't tell anybody my stories anymore, even though I've experienced a lot of really positive things in the past couple of years. I've like got a job that I love. I get to do meaningful work in my community. I've connected with new people. 
I sometimes don't talk about those things as proudly because I'm still using drugs. Mm -hmm. Well, welcome to my podcast where you get to tell your story that is not a redemption arc, that is just you living your best life. It is, yeah, and we're all kind of just living our best life. It's just that we attach a moral value to other people's stories and other people's like choices. Abstinence gets imbued with that sort of like it's the socially acceptable way to go. We want people who use drugs to stop using because we all see drug use as harmful to society and harmful to each other because we haven't questioned those things. So, of course, we love these redemptive stories. They're great, mm -hmm. right? They're, they accomplish an aim of reinforcing what we want to see more of. You know, that moral judgment also goes to the drugs themselves. Like we've imbued some drugs with like they're totally fine, like alcohol and pot. Do you remember the Don't Drive Drunk campaign in the 80s at all? The message was not don't drink alcohol. The message was don't drive drunk, take a cab home. I mean, it's still that. So that's a harm reduction message right there. Right? <laughs> it's not saying there's a problem with the substance. It's saying you're going to choose to use the substance. We know you're going to choose to use the substance. So we're just asking you to take a cab home or give your keys to the party host. So funny how a harm reduction message comes along with the socially acceptable drug of alcohol that more people use that the government makes money off of and revenue off of in Canada, at least, and in this province. And yet, like, nobody's saying that alcohol is the devil and we need to get rid of alcohol, um, even though at one time in Canadian history, we did have prohibition. I just find it funny that that's a harm reduction message I never caught for what it was, right? So don't drive drunk. Well, if we look at harm reduction to its core, seatbelt in the cars mm -hmm. are harm reduction. Mm -hmm. Most things that we do, we do to reduce our chance of harm. You know, we don't tell people not to drive. We tell people to put on their seatbelt, right? So we know what harm reduction is intuitively. We've heard it. We've seen it. Mm -hmm. So at its heart, you know, abstinence is also concerned with the harms that befall people who use substances problematically. It wants to prevent harm, right? But they see the cessation of all use, which is my fancy way of saying stopping all of use, as the best way to avoid those harms. So they think, okay, you're experiencing harms from drugs and alcohol. Stop using drugs and alcohol. The harms will go away. Like, the, this logic is not completely flawed if you looked at it just from that one angle. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think it's beautiful in its simplicity, but hard to make a blanket statement for everybody because it's not accessible for everybody. But I'm not going to make a judgment. I think that you're quite right to bring that up. It's a very simple message. And sometimes people need to have a simple plan, you know, not a 15,000 stage complex plan that's four pages long like the one I do for our episodes, but something simple. <laughs> So in reality, though, I want to just emphasize what we talked about, which is abstinence is enforced as a norm through things like government policies, through legislation, through medical and mental health professionals telling that to their clients or refusing service unless they're abstinent. And it's really focused at that, that level, that higher level, about removing drugs from society. Drugs are seen as a social ill that we want to get rid of. We're not interested in keeping drugs around, except for alcohol and weed. <laughs> We're interested in getting them out of our society, which is why there's a whole push to have a war on it because you're trying to get it out of there. And it's about punishing people who distribute them and ensuring that anybody who uses drugs is treated and gets help because those people are seen as diseased or seen as like somehow missing something, damaged people. And so there's a real sort of belief that comes with that around who drug users are and what we need to do about them. And I don't know if you've ever thought about drug dealers a lot. I think about drug dealers a lot. Um, <laughs> Probably not as much as you. <laughs> so I think about drug dealing a lot, and I think about a lot of the people that I know who do it, and it's it's an income thing, right? It's, mm -hmm. There's no other job opportunities for some of these folks, and we're living in very scarce times. It's an income thing. But if you listen to what the rest of society says about drug dealers, they're all violent criminals that are out to like 
take away your child's innocent and kill them and push tainted drugs on them. There's a story that goes along with that. Yeah, the story is very much um, those people who are going to play on your vice to make more money and who are going to like exploit your weaknesses. And I'm thinking of the movie and the play Rent, where like the drug dealer is clearly the villain of that movie or that musical. And because he's just always there every time she has a relapse, he's there and he's willing to sell drugs to her. Yep. And let me tell you, I mean, the villain edit is like one I'm familiar with, too, from popular culture. I do know drug dealers that won't sell to clients of theirs who are like actively trying to stop. And I know drug dealers who have cut clients off because they see it becoming a problem in their life. So, yes, there are drug dealers out there who are not scrupulous and are not ethical. But guess what? It's capitalism. There are car dealerships that are not ethical. You've got people working <laughs> in banks who are unethical. You've got everybody in every industry who can be a shady character. Even CEOs of companies could be shady, Jordan? Not CEOs. We wouldn't put people in the highest spots in the land who weren't ethical. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So that's kind of the thing that I wanted to draw attention to. And I think the other thing is the philosophy with abstinence is that the user meets the solution when the user is ready for the solution. So it's not about the user being met where they're at. It's about the user moving to the place where the, the answer or the solution is offered. So in this case, maybe rehab, maybe a detox. Mm -hmm. Now, with that approach, I just want to ask you a question. You can be honest with me here. What might be the harm of an approach that focuses so much on the end user moving towards where the solution is? Is there any harm that you can see coming of that? I mean, yeah, there's a few things that I see. I'm going to go with the top two off my head. The first one is if the solution's not moving towards the user, as long as the user is not quote unquote ready, then the user won't have access to any sort of solutions mm -hmm. instead of bringing the solution to the users. And maybe the solutions will need to look differently to meet the person where they're at. The other thing, which I think is a little bit more subtle and more pernicious is that story of you're not abstinence because you're not ready yet that I hear a lot. And it's difficult because for some people that's their narrative and it's probably true. And I've heard it and I've actually encouraged it when people told me that story, because that's their story and it's a true story. But what it does is that people who are not capable or interested in being abstinence, I think we said that a little bit in our, episode on um, the 12-step model, then they get labeled as, oh, you're not ready. Mm -hmm. But just because somebody's not ready for abstinence doesn't mean they're not ready for a bunch of other healthy things that they could bring into their life. So, yeah. I'm really hung up on the fact you used the word pernicious in a sentence. I thought that was lovely because I love that word. <laughs> um, also, you, you beautifully said exactly what I was hoping you were going to say. Um, and you've really hit the nail on the head. So I don't have to say anything more uh, to that. Were these the two points you wanted to make? Pretty much. I think the oh, other yeah. one I was going to make was dramatically, I was going to say people end up dead, but that's because they do. Right. And yeah. I mean, I, I've, I think I shared this on one of our podcasts, but I mean, I've, I've lost a number of friends in recent memory to, to not being ready. And mm -hmm. I think what pained me so much about their passing was realizing that when they went for support, people weren't willing to see where they were. They were more concerned with the fact that they weren't where they thought they should be. And that's the harm that comes when abstinence is the only thing on offer. Yeah. 
it's not a problem with abstinence itself because you're right. It's a simple message. It's effective for a lot of people. And when you believe it and you can do it, it's really a great way to like really remove like drugs aren't all good substances. Sometimes they do do harm to us. They do harm to our bodies and our minds. Like if you can stop and that's what you want for yourself, then I encourage that. I think that's great. I've been having a lot of reflections on readiness recently because I wrote a post about the five stages of change. I know you're probably familiar with that. It's pretty mm-hmm. like popular, like pre-contemplation, contemplation. Mm-hmm. There's like stuff about action and then there's the stuff about maintenance and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I was thinking a lot about changes and when it comes to abstinence for Chris, I'm talking crystal met here, mm-hmm. but I think this can go for so many other things that you want to change in your life is that there's the obvious thing that I want to change. So the change that I want to do is stopping crystal met. And maybe I'm ready to plan or I'm ready to stop crystal met. But what I don't understand is that there are other things that I'm probably going to have to give up if I give up crystal met that I might be in pre-contemplation with because I'm not realizing I'm going to have to give up those things. I might not be realizing that I'm going to have to give up having fun on a Friday night for a long time, give up those friends that I've met, give up coping strategy. Some people to give up crystal met, they have to give up other substances that they don't perceive they have a problem with, or probably they don't have a problem with, but it's still it brings them back to crystal met. They have to give up some sex partners, sometimes some apartment. They have to give up parts of the gay community, dating apps. So it, yeah, maybe they're ready to give up crystal met, but they're not ready to give up all of those other things that it's been touching on. And that's a message that we don't hear a lot regarding readiness. Like, yeah, you're ready to make a change on alcohol or anything. But it, it's going to have an impact on so much more of your life. And it, that's a lot of losses. It's sad to think you're going to have to give up alcohol, which you've had your whole life and never had a problematic use with, and going out in a bar on Saturday night, which you've always loved to go dancing because you want to get rid just of crystal meth. That's like a lot of sacrifices to do. Hmm. You raise a really good point, and um, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I'll share it, and if we decide to keep it, we decide to keep it. But you know, when I talked, I think about, in the uh, 12-step episode, I talked about losing a lot of friends when I left the fellowship, right? I left the 12-step fellowship. And when I think about quitting crystal meth now, one of the things that actually holds me back is I feel like I can't give up another group of people in my life that I feel like I have belonging with. And like my identity has gotten caught up in some of that that community. Yeah. And you're right to bring that up because it's a thing that actually is a deterrent for me from making substantial changes or bigger changes. Could I ask you a very personal question, Jordan? Yes, you can. <laughs> would it feel like if you were to stop Crystal Met tomorrow, would it feel like you would be betraying all the work that you've been doing in the past three, four years in harm reduction? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it would. It would. It would feel like I was betraying that. And I would feel like I was betraying my community, to be honest. I would feel like mm-hmm. I was letting people down who needed me to be there. And and is that true? Probably not. Yeah, I don't think it is. But I can definitely see how. Because we were talking about power dynamic and hierarchy. And somehow, despite everything that we're saying here, mm-hmm. there's a hierarchy that exists that if you were to get sober tomorrow, mm-hmm. it would feel 
forward to public eye and then maybe from some part of our brains that it's hard to let go of that you're quote unquote successful Mm -hmm. and so more valid. Yeah, very true. And maybe I can take the attention off of myself for a moment (laughs) Uh, and take us back. I'll tell a little bit more of a personal story about harm reduction because I want to bring us back to harm reduction as the the alternative and not the alternative as not diametrically opposed sort of partner of abstinence because abstinence, the last thing I'll say about this is that abstinence exists on a spectrum of choices people can make. And it's actually a harm reduction choice is to abstain. That can be the choice that's right for you. Mm-hmm. Just to keep that in mind as we move back to harm reduction, harm reduction for me and why I got interested in harm reduction work was when I started to work at St. Stephen's. I don't know if, did you know that about my, my, no, so before, before I became an international celebrity talking about crystal meth. <laughs> on mental health much. I went to Vancouver once. That's a, not an international celebrity. Um, when I, I used to work at St. Stephen's and, and as a drop-in center here in Toronto, and I worked in their crystal meth program uh, doing street outreach and working with people who use crystal meth in a very different context than I was used to as a gay man. But uh, you know, up until that point, I'd been very depressed. I'd been at home. I'd been using almost every day. Um, I had just come back from Winnipeg. It was a really rough time in my life where I felt like I had nothing to offer. I'd lost my job. I quit my job, basically. And I was not in school. And I was alone and feeling very isolated. And this opportunity came through to work at St. Stephen's. And at St. Stephen's, I went through their peer training program. I didn't want to take it at first, but I ended up going. And that was where I first encountered harm reduction in practice. Like, I'd heard about it because my friends were all involved in it, but I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And so it was the first place I went where when I was high or when I was like coming down, people didn't say I couldn't be there. People didn't say that what I had to say wasn't of value because I wasn't sober. They wanted to know what I thought regardless, and they accepted me where I was. And so for me, who has a lot of trauma around acceptance and being in groups of people and and feeling valid and feeling very quite ashamed of my use, it was the first place where I was mirrored back that it was okay. You're okay. We, we value you here. We just want to see you show up when you can. And when you can't tell us, and it's okay, you're not going to lose your job if you don't come into work because you were too high the night before. Now, did I abuse that power? No. In fact, it was such a reaffirming thing for me that like working there was like probably one of the proudest times of my life. I loved what I did. I felt so super empowered and so super like strong about myself. I felt like this is really great feeling. And, you know, that feeling doesn't always last, but I will tell you this. It gave me enough self-confidence as somebody who used drugs to believe that I was worthwhile regardless of what I put into my body. Yeah. And so that was a really powerful introduction to harm reduction for me. I think that story is the whole point of harm reduction is that fear that if you give someone permission to use and to not show up for work because they're hungover or they're crashing – that then from that point on, it's just going to be a slippery slope of abusing that power. But it, for most people, it's not. Like most people want to have, give value to the society. They want to feel useful. They want to be part of something great. And they want to feel like a purpose in their life. Bringing it back to that message of harm reduction is it really sees people who use drugs as valid and like they have agency in their life and they do want to contribute. Mm-hmm. And they also have things of value to contribute. Yeah. Because if you want to talk about tackling a drug problem, who better to ask than somebody who uses drugs, who knows the ins and outs of a world that is very, very different than I think the world that, you know, healthcare might picture about using and the world sees on TV. It's not the same. Um, and you need the insight of people who use drugs to sort of support 
Yeah. And how many of those policies in our governments are written by people who actually use drugs? Probably zero. <laughs> yeah, I can guarantee the ones about like abstinence and criminality were not written by a drug user. Um, they were written by people who were scared right? It's very fear-based. Yeah. I think what I love about harm reduction is it centers the user in all decisions. And this is the thing that's tricky about harm reduction though, too. It's a lot harder in my mind to plan to reduce the harms and to sort of like try and exercise control over drug use than it is to just stop it. Like I can just stop it and that makes sense. But like if I have to plan around things and enact a plan to reduce the harm, that's work. It's, it's effort. It's very difficult to do sometimes with certain drugs. Like I will tell you like point blank, harm reduction with crystal meth can be challenging because of the way the drug impacts your brain. We talked about the higher functions kind of going offline when you're high on crystal meth. So planning and thinking about consequences is very difficult to do when you're high. But harm reduction calls on people to sometimes think about those things. Yeah. It often gets conflated, harm reduction gets conflated with the programs that we see in place that represent harm reduction, like safe consumption sites, needle exchanges. Those are all institutional harm reduction responses, but it, it's hard. It really is about looking at that behavior that you're encountering and the harms that are coming from it and saying, this is the harm that I want to tackle today, you know, and here's how I'm going to do that. This is my plan to tackle this harm. So perhaps, and this is going on a limb, if I, if I slam crystal meth, right, and I'm trying to like reduce the harm, you might say, well, stop using needles. That's the obvious thing. Just stop it. You're going to hurt your veins. Well, of course I'm going to hurt my veins if I use needles, but... I can do things like make sure my equipment's clean. I can make sure I learn the proper technique. I can alternate my vein choice. I can take breaks. I can do a whole bunch of things before I have to come to the stop using piece, which can be really inaccessible for people who are like still enjoying drug use or getting benefit from it. And those things are very important because regardless if you choose one day to stop injecting or not, if you, that's not the point. But if one day you do, then you're going to have less damage to your body, generally speaking, it's going to be sort of like easier to come in. And if you don't, then you're going to have less damage to your body. And that's a great thing. It's a great thing to come out of things less damaged. I'm a big fan of not damaging my body permanently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And when we think about the origins of harm reduction, which came from the HIV AIDS movement, it was about preventing people from contracting AIDS and dying, right? And like these things have an impact on our bodies and, and healthcare. If you're somebody who out there in your listenership is concerned about tax dollars, harm reduction is better value for your dollar, folks. Just saying. Oh, yeah. Right? It's, it's preventing a lot of healthcare costs that would be associated with a lifetime of using drugs problematically. There's so many research that show that like homelessness and drug use are not the same thing, but you know, in a Venn diagram, they overlap. Mm -hmm. And there's so many research that show that like housing properly with proper care and proper support with social workers like daily meals and social workers housing homeless people cost so much less money than just what we're trying to do right now just in terms of how much it costs for like the police and hospital bills and all of these things i'm not the best to talk about those but people who are good at that made the mats mm -hmm. and i remember my first job one of the person we were working with my boss saying, oh, your job is not to save this person. Your job is to make sure that this person goes to jail as little as possible this year. And my boss was like, if you save like three trips in jail, three weekend in jail for that person, you've probably paid more than your salary and mine together for the year. Wow. Like if you kept that person out of jail, all of the costs that this does is was more than our mm. poor, you know, social workers' mm -hmm. salary. There's so much that's telling about that statement, and it just makes me think like, well, 
if it's costing that much to put them in jail, who's making money off of that person being in jail? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Not me. I think my boss was like paraphrasing. I don't know that he had like all of the Facts. money charts in front of him <laughs> and blah, blah. But in a way that like makes sense because sending someone to prison is just very expensive. It is in policing those people and the arrests of mm-hmm. those people and prosecuting those people. All the paperwork and yeah. Yeah, it's it's we've built an entire industry that is like based off of that. And and we could talk about the cops a lot, you know, but it's there a lot of challenges to that idea that criminalization is the answer. We're seeing that right now with the opioid crisis, um, which I'm going to rename the drug poisoning crisis in respect of like what people in the community call it, yeah. because it is a drug poisoning crisis. It is not an overdose crisis. Drugs are poisoned. We have a tainted supply. People are dying. And we've seen that in COVID, like exponential like increase in deaths from drug-related overdose and, and poisoning. That's important. Can you say more for people who don't know what you mean? Because everybody thinks it's an overdose crisis, but it is not what it is. It's because you were saying the drug are not what people think the drugs are. Like what they're being given is not what they're receiving, right? Absolutely. We have a poison drug supply. And what I mean by that is that because drugs are an illegal substance, like you cannot legally go to the store and buy heroin. Uh, You could at one time, but not anymore. Drugs are in an illegal market. They're unregulated. So they're not subject to government, you know, safety and quality checks like medicine is. They're illegal. And we know that they're tainted with things. They're, They're cut with things. And because they're coming through like the border and it's very hard to like get the stuff to make drugs out of sometimes, they drugs are combined with other things that are not particularly good for people to like pad them out or to make money or whatnot. But there's a lot of reasons that the drugs that people are encountering are not exactly pure. And the fact that there's no regulation around it makes it very easy for drugs that are cut with things like fentanyl, carfentanil, any of those sort of more potent opiates. And they're also cut with things like uh, benzodiazepines, which are your PAM medications, like clonazepam. Mm -hmm. And they're cut with these things that are dangerous because when people take the drug thinking it's fentanyl, right, and they've got a tolerance for fentanyl, and it's carfentanil, which is, I don't know, exponentially stronger, the greater the chance of them having an overdose and dying. They're taking things that they don't know what's in them. Drug testing is difficult to do in this province. Mm -hmm. The test results are not immediate. You have to wait. And one thing about drug users that I know, we don't like to wait to do the drugs that we have. Right. Yeah. I don't usually sit on my bag of crystal meth for like three days waiting for an answer. So if the testing isn't accessible, people are going to be doing the drugs and exposing themselves to a tainted supply. Now, one thing I just want to clarify is that it's not drug dealers that are like tainting the drug. Yeah, I was thinking we go back to our drug dealer conversation. Mm-hmm. The general idea is like the drug dealers are purposefully like mixing up drugs to make them more potent and more addictive and to find more clients. That I don't think that's true. <laughs> if you're killing your clients, you're not a very good business person, I have to say. And uh, it's not to make fun of it, but like what we're talking about here is people's HBO idea of drug use and drug users and drug dealers. What's really happening is that drugs like cocaine or other drugs that people are using are coming in contact with other drugs during the preparation phase innocuously. Like it's not like a thing that people are planning to do. No drug dealer that I've ever met is like sitting at home thinking about how can I poison my drug supply to like kill a few people. Mm-hmm. Or make people more addicted. People are already using drugs. It's not like you need your drugs to become more addictive to continue to sell them. That's That makes no sense. And a lot of the time, people who are using the drugs that are, are, are impacted by this, like say cocaine, which I think there were a number of deaths related to cocaine that had fentanyl in it, 
a number of years mm -hmm. ago, which is when we started to pay attention to the issue. Because it's rich people who use cocaine. Yes, rich white people using cocaine. They start dying, and then we've got an issue on our hands, apparently. Mm -hmm. And I know that we're sounding kind of glib about this, folks, but like I think we're trying to draw attention to the fact there's a lot of hypocrisy and racism still at the heart of like drug use, and it's really disturbing. It's one of those things that we need to call it what it is. Because the government will not decriminalize drugs or even legalize them and make them subject to regulation, you're basically saying to people, whatever you use, we don't care. You're taking your chances because you're using a drug that we deem morally reprehensible. The morality that goes along with that, it pains me because I don't like to mince words. I consider it really government-sanctioned you know, murder. I'm going to call it what it is. We allow people to die when there's a solution at hand, when there's evidence that points to that solution. Through inaction, we are allowing people to pass away. And those people are of value. Yeah. If you want to hear somebody who's really good at speaking about drugs, listen to Zoe Dodd. She's an activist in Toronto, and Zoe is such a passionate advocate for people who use drugs. She said something that changed my life when I was sitting in an audience listening to her talk, and at the time, I was not involved in harm reduction. She said, drug users' lives matter. And I'll never forget that, because that was the first time I'd heard anybody say anything about a drug user's life mattering and being positive just because they were there. Mm -hmm. I used to hear that recovering drug users were good people, and they're, they're the positive story. But nobody had ever said that if I use drugs, I still matter, and my life is still meaningful. People still love and care about people who use drugs, and not everybody who uses drugs is an addict. People are impacted by this crisis who've never like been addicted to drugs. They do the one wrong drug at a club one night, and they're impacted by the same crisis. So we need to stop moralizing with folks around this. I will say this, though. I don't see abstinence and harm reduction as diametrically opposed. I see them as working together, provided that we can get past this moral sort of judgment that we value that we give to abstinence. It's not the only way. Yeah, I'm also going to push that one step further. I mm -hmm. think abstinence is a form of harm reduction mm -hmm. because absolute abstinence does not exist. Mm -hmm. Like, I think people who choose abstinence in their life, they set a line where they believe abstinence should be. Mm -hmm. And then once they're past that line, for example, stopping crystal meth, then they say they're abstinent. But like, what is absolute abstinence? <laughs> like, what are all the things that you would need to stop to say that you've achieved, you know, abstinence? And I've never used cocaine in my life. Am I like, abstinent from cocaine no. i don't know where i'm going with that <laughs> i don't either i'm like hmm we're getting to some really deep philosophy like what do i have to do to totally abstain do i have to live on a mountaintop like an aesthetic lifestyle just alone yeah in my head automatically i saw those like very religious catholic people like living in poverty and simplicity and like flagellating themselves when they have desire of the flesh or <laughs> want to eat something that's tasty. <laughs> I really want to eat a donut right now. Now that you say that, I'm like, <laughs> oh man, I want a donut. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, I have no problem with abstinence. And I, I, I really don't. It's just sort of like what we talked about in the 12 step movement. It's just when people start to make the choice for other people. And that's the one thing I love about harm reduction is it puts the choice back in the individual's hands. And it empowers them to say, you can make a decision and you have the power to make a decision that's good for you. Whereas I think sometimes abstinence has been caught up in a lot of, about other people telling you what's good for you. Because mm -hmm. if I can't do it and it doesn't work for me, that's actually a harm, right? Like that's damaging to me. Yeah. Um, so we went places you did not expect. 
Are there a few facts that we're forgetting that you would like us to know about abstinence versus harm reduction? Um, actually, I want to say something interesting about harm reduction. So right now we're at a very interesting moment in our country where there's a lawsuit, a charter challenge to our Charter of Rights and Freedoms put on by the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs who are challenging the legality of our criminalization of drugs, saying it violates people who use the drugs, freedoms and rights under the charter. That's a huge deal. Like no one's really launched a charter challenge in that way before. It's going to be heard before the Supreme Court. We'll have an answer probably in a few years. But if our listeners are interested, CAPUD, Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs, check it out. It's incredible work. This really, they're making a brave stand for folks, I think, who use drugs. We haven't touched a lot on PMP and crystal meth, but I wanted to say one thing that I noticed doing the research was how little queer men who use drugs factored into any of these discussions at all. Yeah, totally. Part of our work, I know Vincent, you care about it immensely, and I do as well, is drawing attention to the fact that gay men and bi men and queer men are not necessarily served by a lot of our current harm reduction or abstinence strategies. They're invisible there. And that's what we're trying to draw light and attention to, is that the strategies have to be adapted. We need to talk differently to queer men about their drug use because they don't see themselves as drug users a lot of the time. They see the stigma in the label, and I don't know about you, but I'm like, I'm already gay. I've got HIV. I don't want another stigmatized identity. Thank you very much. Yeah. But we're trying to draw attention to that. So, And generally speaking, obviously, there are exceptions for sure. But mm -hmm. generally speaking, gay, bi, and queer men tend to use uppers more than downers. So it's different types of drugs that have different effect on the body. So it has really like separated Mm -hmm. those two communities and it almost feels if i'm being honest here on the air often the drug poisoning crisis feels very out of the way of the work that i do with drug users it's kind of weird to say but it almost feel like this is them and this is me mm -hmm. and there's not a lot of conversation in between You raise a good point, and I, I guess I would say I agree with you in a certain respect. I think because I've personally been so heavily influenced by people who work in that, that field, I, I don't see them as, as so separate, but I do know that the guys in the community sometimes do see that, that way, or they don't see themselves as being caught up in that problem. Something happened to me at a party this year where I met a guy who talked about a friend of his who had injected crystal meth, and it was tainted with fentanyl, and he passed away, and I had never mm -hmm. heard of a queer man who partied and played who had ever encountered fentanyl and never encountered anybody who died in our community from a fentanyl overdose. I know people who died from psychosis and from like self-harm, but it was shocking to me because I also felt that removed and I thought it's not going to impact us. You know, all it takes is for one batch of crystal meth to be tainted with fentanyl by accident and for, you know, one gay guy to pick that up and go to a party and use it and slam with it and pass away. And then it's our problem. It becomes our problem. And, and if that's already happened, I just want to encourage anybody out there who parties and plays that you you don't know, and it doesn't cost you anything to get naloxone trained. You can do it online if you want to. <laughs> I can give you resources for that. Get naloxone trained and just be aware. Even if you don't encounter fentanyl, the people who pass away from GHB overdoses, you can be harmed by crystal meth. Like Learn about the drugs you're using and the safest way to use them. Keep each other safe. Mm -hmm. It's not our crisis until it is, and I just don't want to see that happen to folks. So. Yeah, one thing I've heard, too, that keeps us separate, that keeps those two worlds separate, is how often in some of the opioid 
users circles there's still a lot of like homophobia and stigma and discrimination mm-hmm. and that's that's these are hard like these are like systemic complicated issues mm-hmm. that people who use drug are divided and there's probably a us versus them that's happening and like a good drug user versus a bad drug user that's happening instead of like all working together we still like further divide but it's hard not to because society has always told some people that homosexuality was bad and other people that opioid use was bad. And then it's hard for those two groups to get over those prejudices to work together. Really difficult to do that. And and then I think I wanted to, to touch on that too, that like if we have so much in common, because we really at the heart of things, right? Like, you know, everybody who's involved in this sort of work if you're abstinent, you care about people who use drugs. If you're in harm reduction, you care about people who use drugs. We have some really core things that we, we care about. We don't want to see people that we love and care about die. We don't want to see them harmed. We don't want to see them lose their jobs. We don't want to see those things happen. We need to find common ground and overcome those sort of differences because at the end of the day, there are bigger forces at play that, that win when people don't come together and find that united sort of front. If we're all divided and we're fighting with each other about who's good and who's got the right way of looking at things then people can continue to not do anything about the problem that we're faced with in our communities, right? Yeah. And so to me, there's never any difference between me as a gay guy who parties and plays and somebody who uses opioids because we're at the mercy of the same oppressive forces that benefit from us not having long, healthy lives, that benefit from keeping us from advocating for ourselves and for better policies. So like, let's get over our differences, people. I know, but that's difficult because in a systemic approach, Mm -hmm. in a macro system, we have the same goals. But in a micro system, it's hard to get along sometimes. And sometimes some people's safety can be compromised. It can be. Yeah. Our differences in strategies are very different, but our goal is the same. And that that builds more common ground than we have differences. And so we need to figure out, yeah, we do need to do the hard work of figuring out those differences. And sometimes it's about providing more nuanced services for folks. Like if you guys don't want to go to your harm reduction space because they perceive it as being homophobic, well, then what can we do to bring the harm reduction space to you? then what can we do that's going to translate that knowledge into our community? Ultimately, it's almost the same conclusions as we had last week talking about the 12-step models, is that there is not one universal approach to health. There is not one universal approach to life. And a one-size-fits-all solution never existed and will never exist. Mm-hmm. So we're not saying different things when we have different strategies we're all saying the same thing just the more strategies the merrier it's just sometimes talking about those strategies can hurt other people who use other kind of strategies and that's Hmm. i think inevitable i think it might be i think i know what you're saying though now i think about the way that i talk about my path to say recovery might make somebody who isn't there feel invalidated or harm them and i think that's a big thing that we have to figure out something about that you can't throw drug users under the bus in order to like make somebody who doesn't use drugs anymore feel better. There's got to be a way to talk about it, but I don't have the answers for that today. It's very challenging because language language is really powerful. And we want to be there for that person who has a success story of being abstinence. And we want to be there for somebody who is not abstinent. But again, macro system, same fight, but micro system. It's very different and there's such a big clash and it's very challenging to find language that does not hurt anyone in the process. 
It's true. And we have yet to celebrate drug users' lives in the way that we do people who don't. I, I tried to make this a hashtag at one time. <laughs> Didn't take off. Um, hashtag celebrate drug users because I thought to myself, what? how many drug users are out there who have wonderful, successful lives or, or moments of joy or like accomplishment that we never celebrate because of what they do? Mm-hmm. And it's like, we need to be better at language and we need to be better at embracing the fact that drug users are not all problematic drug users. And some people have control over that. And everybody's different. And people who are quote unquote problematic use are still deserving of love, respect, and, you know, trying to increase their well-being. Yep. Are you saying that I'm deserving of love and respect and trying to increase my well-being, Vincent? I am saying that, Jordan. I don't believe you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're meeting one more time next week. So you have one week <laughs> one week, <laughs> to digest those words. Just you wait and see. I'm going to have self-love next week. <laughs> <laughs> and to our viewers, by the time you listen to the next episode, get more self-love as well. Everybody say love. <laughs> On that note, thank you everyone for listening. You can find us again on social media at Mental Health Much and at Blore and Gore, G-O-R-R. And until next time, keep talking about mental health as much as you can and stay safe. Ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da.